What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Relentless Speaks podcast. We're back with a brand new episode. My daughter is turning 10 next month. And it got me thinking about, you know, 10 years ago, I was bringing life into the world. And I'm thinking about the state of the world right now, living in a global pandemic, seeing social unrest happening in response to racial injustice. And I was thinking, what would it be like right now if I was pregnant and all that comes with being a new mom and being nervous about the world that your child is inheriting. And so it really got me thinking about wanting to spend some time on the podcast, speaking to an expectant mother about her journey of carrying a baby through the pandemic. So I invited artist, educator, and social justice advocate, Tammy Abraham. She is an Arab, Egyptian, American, Muslim woman who is bringing life into the world. And she's been using her art as a form of protest. But I imagine there is so much that is on her mind every day and every night. And so let's take a listen and let's hear about her journey. Tammy, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hello. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. So I appreciate having this platform to talk about some important issues. Great, great. I'm so happy to have you here and just in time before your baby comes. So I'm glad you could sit with us and talk to the Relinda Speaks podcast. Well, my first question to you is thinking about your immigrant story and experience How have you navigated America as this Arab-Egyptian Muslim woman? So I grew up as a first-generation Arab-American, and growing up, I always felt like I had two sides to my identity. I had my American, quote-unquote, American side, um, which was the part of me that was constantly trying to assimilate and make people think, you know, I'm one of you. I'm not I'm not this oddball. <laughs> and then um, I also grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. There were no other Muslims or brown folks in my school, so I was basically always trying to blend in. And even though I was trying to blend in, I always deep down kind of knew that I was different. And then there was the other side of my identity, which was my Arab Egyptian Muslim side, which I always had to uphold in my parents' eyes. So they immigrated to the U.S. in 1976, and they very much so chose to not assimilate. They kept strong ties with their friends who had also immigrated from Egypt. And within that community, they created their own social network. And so my weekends often consisted of hanging out with those family friends. And I ended up building solid relationships with those kids because they understood my reality. Until this day, very much so, they are my best friends, um, which... It's kind of, it's interesting. You end up obviously gravitating to those that are like you. And then Sunday was our mosque day. Uh, We would attend Sunday school at the mosque and there was always some kind of outing that was going to happen after. But then the funny part is Monday would come and I was back to the other identity with my white friends and not really wanting to talk about my weekend. Or often I would kind of whitewash what I did, you know, because I didn't want to stand out. There was like this fear in me that I would be labeled as different. And so that's kind of this dichotomy of my identity that I dealt with growing up. And 
I also remember having to hide things from my parents and, you know, being unable to talk to them about things that were, I guess, quote unquote, normal to my high school friends, you know, um, like it being unacceptable to talk to uh, boys on the phone. Like I literally would have to sneak phone calls to boys or, you know, this, I remember my senior year of high school, just constantly fighting with my parents to let me go away to college because, you know, dorms had this really bad reputation in my parents' eyes. Um, and I had to convince them to let me go because they feared that I would end up drinking and partying and I'd be exposed to all this like college American BS in their eyes. And, um, you know, all of these things were just really major taboo topics that I never felt safe to discuss with my parents. And I ended up just, I I did a lot of lying, you know, I experimented on my own and I I lied and I I hid things from them. And it, it really felt like a dual lifestyle. And, you know, I I also felt misunderstood growing up in a predominantly white public school. You know, people thought that being Arab was the same thing as being Indian. And it was just so misunderstood what Arab really meant. And I think till this day, it is still misunderstood. But I remember a specific moment on the, the school bus and this kid, he was like, hey, dot head. And uh, he basically asked me if my mom even knows how to speak English. Like he was like, you dot head, do you even know how to speak English? And it's like, here I am thinking, oh, I got these people fooled. They probably think I'm white and I'm passing as white. But really, they knew I was different. And then, you know, to to obviously delve deeper to that, calling me a dot head. Well, there's so that's that's a loaded statement. Right. Um, so. It was difficult. And then just my home life at home, it was very much like we were living in Egypt. Um, My parents had a call for prayer, which is the Aden, that would go off five times a day. And uh, I remember having a friend over from school and trying to explain that and what it was. And they they just looked at me like I was crazy, you know, and we, we often ate traditional Middle Eastern food. My parents' closest friends were all Arabs, and my parents rarely watched, you know, American TV. They had their dish hooked up with all their favorite Middle Eastern content loaded on it, and uh, Arabic was the primary language that was spoken in our home. And um, I remember specifically a shift happening within my family, kind of like this shift towards them trying to noticeably assimilate specifically after 9-11 and I and I remember my dad he went out and he got this big American flag and he put it up in front of our house just to show the neighbors you know we're one of the good Muslims (laughs) and uh and I remember during that time like right before 9-11 had happened I had traveled to Mecca for Umrah which is it's it's similar to the pilgrimage that happens Um, And I had gone with a group of our family friends at the time. And I remember coming back and I wanted to wear the hijab, the the veil, the headscarf. I wanted to wear it so bad. And I remember asking my mom, like, can I do this? Is that okay? And she would not allow it because she feared that I would be targeted. And, you know, it's it's weird because these are the moments that I remember trying to tap into my identity and to tap into Islam and be who what I thought my parents even wanted me to be and I was being shut down because it's too much you know so it was confusing and it was it was really it was it was difficult balancing you know the religion the culture and trying to 
kind of blend in my world with my parents' world. Wow. So you're bringing a new life into the world in the midst of a global pandemic, COVID-19, and also the social unrest that we're seeing as a result of systemic racism and racial injustice. And so what has been your experience carrying all of this as well as carrying a baby and knowing that there is so much turmoil in the world as you bring new life into the world? What's what, what's on your mind? What are your fears? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? Well, I think, yeah, this year has been a wild year. I, I think a lot of people would agree with that. I have just been telling myself to take things day by day. I've been privileged enough to be teaching from home during quarantine, just trying to avoid contact and be safe. And um, I think my experience this year specifically has been a lot to take in on multiple levels. Um, so my husband and I, we moved from New York City to LA. It'll be a year this June. And uh, the move itself and just adjusting to a new job, a new city, that was a lot. And then coupled with pregnancy and then a global pandemic and now the current uprising, um, it's just been a lot to manage emotionally, I would say. Um, my mom actually battled through COVID. Um, she she was located in New Jersey and she's 76 and God bless her. <laughs> she fought so hard. Um, and the experience, I guess, was just difficult on many levels. The hardest was being stuck in LA while she's in New Jersey and just having her alone in the hospital and trying to manage doctor phone calls from afar was hard because, um, you know, her English is it's not great. So I was constantly trying to call in to speak to nurses and doctors for updates. And uh, the week that she was hospitalized was probably the hardest week of this entire year. She was sent to the hospital, ironically, on Mother's Day and then was in there for 10 days. Um, and this was all happening during Ramadan, which is our the Muslim holy month. And, you know, I wasn't fasting because I'm pregnant, but my husband was. But, you know, best believe I was praying all the time. And I do truly believe that God answered my prayers because she ended up recovering. And it was a long recovery, still trying to sort things all out through that and get help from afar. Um, but you know, thankfully, my brother is in New Jersey, and he's been able to support her with this. So that's been helpful. Um, my dad is in Egypt right now. And you know, COVID there is spreading currently at a fast rate and the medical treatment there is limited due to limited supplies. So you know, my dad is retired in Egypt, he's retired there. And I wanted him to come back to the US. But unfortunately, flights are blocked off there till this moment, they're still blocked off. And um, the airport has been shut down. Um, another issue stressing me is about having my parents here in LA to meet the baby when, when uh, the baby gets here in July and just, you know, the risk of them traveling at their age and what that might mean for the baby as well. So there's just so many things happening in my world personally, and I'm sure a lot of others are going through experiences that are similar of just feeling like the world is in turmoil. But all that said, I am excited to bring new life into this world. 
it's just a lot thinking how I once imagined pregnancy, you know, a certain way with a baby moon and a baby shower and, and everything has been the complete opposite of that. It's, it hasn't been celebratory. It's just been a lot of, you know, just fights, battles. Yeah, my so my husband, he is black and our daughter will be half Arab, half black and Muslim. Um, so with racial with racial conversations that are happening now that kind of seem to be like saturating social media, TV, it feels like a lot, you know, and he and I have been talking about just these issues, but it's great to hear new voices enter these conversations. Um, For me on a personal level, I have been doing a lot of reflecting as to how the world has changed so much this past year and how those changes and those effects will be felt by our daughter. Um, And the thing I just keep coming up with is there's just so much unknown. And I think that probably the scariest part of it all is like the fear of the unknown. Like, I don't know what this means for my daughter and her, like, what is her life going to look like when it comes to school, when it comes to her balancing these different identities. And there's just this shift that is happening right now in the world. And I I don't know what it means for our future. And that's, that is a bit scary, just this fear of the unknown. So I've been wanting to ask this question because as we were seeing protests unfold across the country, there was a sign that I saw at one of the protests that I was at and the sign read Muslims for Black Lives. And I wanted to ask you, can we talk about that intersection and, you know, why in particular um, would, you know, signs such as Muslims for Black Lives be present I want to get your thoughts. I mean, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of funny. On the one hand, Muslims for Black Lives, it's great. You know, it's great that Muslims are finally having these conversations. And on the other hand, the way that we're doing it, it can be problematic. Personally, I've come across several Muslim Instagram influencers, specifically from Lebanon and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. And they're choosing to show their support for Black Lives Matters through blackface. And I'm looking at these ads and I'm going to myself, what are you doing? Like literally painting their faces with brown makeup and saying things like black is beautiful and racism. And there's just so much wrong with that. And showing solidarity through blackface is just not the move at all. What are you doing? And the fact that they can so ignorantly post things like this just shows how much work we still have to do in our Muslim community and in our Arab community. The best way to show solidarity is work within your community to dismantle racism what what are these conversations that need to be had among our community? Let's face them head on. Let's start a dialogue and change things. And, you know, personally, as an Arab woman who married a black man, I have been on the receiving end of of these kind of conversations many times, just hearing terms like the N-word being used in Arabic to refer to black people, you know, or, or the, to refer to hip hop music. 
And as much as I can educate and correct this ignorance and tell people, well, that's not the correct word to use, there needs to be much more than that done. And now's the time for that to happen because it's well overdue. So yes, Muslims for Black Lives, great, but there is still a lot of Arab discrimination that we need to battle through. And Muslims for Black Lives, it's an interesting intersection because There are simply so many black Muslims, but the part that stands out to me within the Muslim community is also how separate our communities are. There's the black mosque, there's the Turkish mosque, there's the Arab mosque, which within itself is ironic because that's not what Islam preaches, nor is it what the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, pushed for. He wanted our ummah or our community to come together, but the influence of racial discrimination has unfortunately weaved its way into our religion. For I, I think for thousands of years, most religions promoted a sort of, you know, them versus us mentality. And the vast majority of religions considered their adherents to be chosen And anybody who did not share their faith would be inferior. And the same can be said when it comes to races and nationalities. And it wasn't until the Quran was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that a religion began to seriously spread the belief that everybody's equal. And I think that's what Malcolm X noticed about this religion too, is that it was trying to see everyone as one, one ummah, one community. And there is a passage in the Quran that a lot of people still refer to when it comes to discussing race. Quran 30, 22, I'm, I'm actually going to read it. It says, among his wonders is the creation of the heavens and the earth and the diversity of your tongues and colors. For in this, behold, there are messages indeed for all who are possessed of innate knowledge. And so this passage was something that was kind of like, almost like an an anomaly of its time. And it went in direct contrast to what other religious texts were generally teaching. And instead, it kind of tells us that all of mankind was created by God with languages and races coming into existence by design. And this is something to keep in mind today as gentrification and westernization is kind of taking over the world. The prophet, he, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he reaffirmed this teaching in a hadith. And he said, like, people, your Lord is one of your father. Adam is one. There is no favor of an Arab over a foreigner, nor a foreigner over an Arab, and neither white skin over black skin, nor black skin over white skin, except by righteousness. Have I not delivered this message? And I mean, I I don't think it could be made any clearer than that. You know, this hadith in present day you can pick up a distinct feeling of urgency that race aside, the Prophet Muhammad was trying to desperately drive the message of inclusivity home to his followers, many of whom had come to think of themselves as better than non-Muslims and non-Arabs, despite the Quran's teachings on race. And so I think that's something that needs to be reaffirmed in the Arab Muslim culture because we've deviated so far away from that message of Islam. And now it's something that we need to fix. You know, there's a lot of steps that go into fixing this. 
um, I think we need to relook at our history, specifically the Arab slave trade and how this contributed to the region's anti-blackness. You know, research the Libyan trans-Mediterranean slave trade that's currently happening. Let's understand this. Let's break this down. Black Arabs still experience discrimination in relationships, marriages, careers, and just different aspects of life. How can we break those norms and push back against Arab cultural norms? How can we do that? And this whole ideology that the fairer skin is preferred. Well, it's not. And according to the religion, it's not as well. So why do we have that in there? Let's let's take that. Let's remove that. And let's challenge that using our own Islamic scriptures, like the ones I just referred to. What is anti-blackness and how does it show up in other communities of color? Um, I wanted to um, explore that a little bit. Take a listen. Check it out. I think we need to have important conversations with families and communities about their anti-blackness and just lean into that discomfort. You know, my, my parents, my uncles, cousins, they all have some kind of messed up racist ideas that I've needed to check them on, you know, specifically their language and their actions. And a large part of of this is from the anti-black Egyptian, Lebanese, and and Gulf regions media outlets that continue to use black people as jokes, as like the pit of their jokes, or simply support or create colorism where the fairer girl is the prettier one, like el beda jamila, like that's that's an ideology where whiteness is the preferred um, skin color and the dark ones are seen as less desirable. It's literally to the point where they have the makeup commercials in the Middle East that play and and they show you how to lighten your skin. You know, these all reaffirm colorism. I specifically remember being in Egypt one summer and my family making fun of how tan I got because now I look like a black girl. And to them, they see it as a harmless joke, but it's not. It's just another way of perpetuating racism. And there are some really ugly norms in the Middle Eastern countries that are flat out racist, and we need to put a hard stop to them. Like I mentioned before, stop using the N-word to refer to black people. That's not okay. And you say that to them, they don't get it. But then you have to go into the history and show them why. Let's do that. Let's go into the history and show you why, because it needs to stop. Um, Another word that needs to stop is the abd or the abid. Stop using that word. It refers to black people and it literally translates into one who is subordinate as a slave or a servant. I mean, that's despicable. That's offensive. You cannot walk around saying that, referring to a black person. Ending the color symbolism of white as positive and black as negative. We see this in Middle Eastern commercials and we see it in the film industry and it needs to stop. On the 2020 census, There was supposed to be the MENA category, which stands for Middle Eastern North African. And um, it was slated to be on the 2020 census, but the current administration decided to remove it as a category. And so for those that identify as Middle Eastern or North African, it's under the white racial category. And so as a person who is Egyptian, um, which is Northern Africa, 
I wanted to get your thoughts on this idea of this Middle Eastern category um, falling under this white dominance and this white label. Um, do you think that it's done purposely to increase the numbers of the declining white racial group here in America? Or is there another geopolitical reason um, why that Middle Eastern term would fall under that white umbrella? That's a great question. I've definitely thought about how MENA represents Middle Eastern North Africans and how that kind of looks in the 2020 census. And I mean, in general, Middle Eastern North Africans, it's a hard category to put everyone under because within this identity, there's such a diaspora of different types of cultures, right? Especially in that region. But at the same time, it's probably the best term that I can think of to put us all under somewhat, somewhat of the same umbrella, if you will. But I think the main point that needs to be drilled is that we need representation. And the fact that the census does not include Middle Eastern representation, nor North African representation is just a slap across the face. I mean, if the census is supposed to help the federal government determine things like I don't know, congregational seats to, you know, how much 1.5 trillion in federal spending will be distributed. How can we be a part of these conversations when we aren't even being represented? You know, how can you hear what our concerns are if you've identified us as white? That's literally what we are told to check. And so Amina category would represent a diverse set of dismissed identities that have specific needs. And getting the census data would be a good start to meeting those needs. And I mean, it's no secret that Donald Trump has targeted Middle Easterners, you know, the Muslim ban and all of that. And it's been said that prior to President Donald Trump arriving, the, the MENA category was going to be a part of the census until the Trump administration came in. It's a politicized act, you know? <laughs> Why? Because if you, if you take Arabs out of the white category, what's going to happen? It's, it's going to drop almost to the point that it's going to be a white minority. And, you know, God forbid that should happen when you basically have a government and its officials who are white extremists. So it's problematic. We aren't getting the representation that we need. And without representation, how can you hear our concerns? So I know for me, something that has definitely impacted my experience that I'll talk about at length in a future podcast is colorism and the idea of your proximity to whiteness affords you opportunity and privilege within society. And so I wanted to talk to you about that personally, also knowing that Eurocentric beauty standards play into this idea of dominant white culture and colorism. So what's been your experience with this? And are you aware of how you live and move through the world based on colorism. Yes, colorism definitely impacts Middle Easterners and me personally, it's impacted, you know, Arabs or Middle Easterners similar to Latinx folks have varying racial identities. You can be Arab 
and black. You can be Arab and mixed. You can be Arab and white passing. So it's important to really understand the ways in which your skin color is perceived in both Arab and non-Arab spaces. The discrimination that non-Black Arabs experience due to ethnic or religious minority status, it's real. It's real and it's terrible. And, you know, in a world where anti-Blackness and white supremacy are pervasive, the color of your skin does matter. And for me personally, I can pass as white. But if you've ever come to my house growing up, you know I'm not white based on my cultural norms and my parents being immigrants. And I think it's really important to start separating the context between a person of color and one who is black. Those are two different experiences. And as I explained, I had the privilege of growing up where I could have kind of this split life where I had my white friends during the week, I was trying to blend, and then my Arab Muslim community on the weekend, and I can blend if I wanted to. But if I was a black Muslim, I wouldn't be able to do that. Also, being from the African continent does not necessarily make you black in the American context. And I think it's really important that I just make note of that. Like, I'm Egyptian, that is in Africa, but I'm not black. I'm a person of color. And so recognizing the implication of that and holding myself accountable is also important. Wow, that's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. So I I really appreciate you bringing that to the forefront. Okay, so with identity comes all of these terms, Middle Eastern, Arab, North African. So I wanted to check in with my guest about those terms, as well as do Egyptians see themselves as a part of the Black diaspora? Take a listen. I mean, based on my experience, being Middle Eastern and Arab is based on cultural and ethnic norms in that region. The language predominantly spoken, obviously being Arabic, makes you Arab. Egyptians see themselves as North African based on geography, but more specifically, Middle Eastern based on culture and ethnic norms. I think rarely do they consider themselves as part of the Black diaspora unless they identify as a darker skin tone and present as Black. And most commonly, this is seen in the southern parts of Egypt. There are Egyptians there who have darker skin complexion and they they would identify with this Black diaspora. Now, growing up, depending on how assimilated your family is, you might identify as white. Although I personally don't know many people that considered themselves white growing up, but I I can see that happening if you're assimilated so much to the point where you've gone far from your culture and far from your um, identity, you might then, like if Arabic isn't spoken in your home, you might start to identify as white. I think my whole life I've kind of been passing as ethnically ambiguous and with that comes a lot of privilege and I often got you know questions like are you Italian are you Indian what are you people sometimes don't even know and I think just naming when someone is Middle Eastern isn't necessarily an identity that stands out to many people just because they're not familiar with what it means to be Middle Eastern or Arab. And I think a large part of that is just simply based off of the fact that they're so 
little of us here in the U.S. I mean, I think it's 1% literally of the U.S. is Middle Eastern or Arab. But that's no thanks to the census identifying us. Um, But I can't emphasize more that this term person of color needs to be separated from black because, you know, I can be seen as white passing. And a friend of mine from South Egypt cannot like she presents as black. So she and I move through spaces very differently. My husband, as I mentioned, is black. And he moves through spaces differently as well. And when I think of my soon-to-be daughter, I don't don't really know what that means for how she will move through spaces because she will be black and Arab and Muslim. So she has a couple of different identities that she has to kind of manage, right? But regardless of how light-skinned she is, colorism will be a part of her experience. And I know when we raise her that we will teach her and let her know what it means to be Black in America, for sure. So, we've really dug into some great questions, really went in. What's a, a final thought or perspective? What's, what's your hope or dream for the future and for the future of your child? and for the future of the world. I think the, I guess the easiest way to put it is I really do believe that children are our future and that these upcoming generations are the ones that we can inspire inspire to create real change in our system. And I think that's why I've been so passionate about educating children to really understand the world for what it is with its ugliness, with its positivity, with all the different angles that you can see the world because they are our future and they're the change that we need to rely on. Thank you to our guest today, Tammy. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being so open and vulnerable and sharing your identity and experience. Where can the listeners follow you to learn more about the great work that you're doing? You can visit me at Paint for Peace by Tammy on Instagram. And all sales of my paintings are used to donate to different relief efforts in the Middle East at Paint, the number four, Peace by Tammy. Thank you. And I look forward to meeting baby girl when she's here. Congratulations and all the best to you. I know there's so much going on in the world as we still face the global pandemic where we see cities across the country are still spiking upwards with their numbers. And even though they may have reopened, many cities are rethinking their their efforts around reopening and having to modify some policies and procedures. And I just keep thinking, if we don't get a handle on this, I know everyone keeps going back to this idea of a, when can we get back to normal? There's this idea of when can we get back to normal? I just want to get back to normal. And I hate to break it to everybody. We're not going back. We're not going back to normal. And thinking about all that has come up in the past few weeks about what's wrong and what's broken in the system. Why would we want to go back? Why would we want to go back to that dysfunction? And so... In the midst of grief and sadness and bewilderment of a 2020 that none of us could have predicted, I wonder how we can reimagine the world that we want to create and the world that we want to live in. And so something that I want to offer 
before we get out of here on the podcast is this idea of self-care and recognizing that self-care is a form of resistance. Being able to cultivate a space that's for you, a space that you can think out loud, a space where you can cry out loud if you need to. And I know in the hustle and bustle of our lives, we're often being pulled in multiple directions and trying to figure out how we can show up for other people in our lives. But I think it's really important right now as we think about the armor that we need and the strength that we need. So whatever it is and whatever it looks like for you, we need to do it. I really enjoyed that conversation. It really got me thinking about the ways in which anti-blackness shows up um, in so many spaces and spaces that perhaps we haven't even considered uh, before. And so um, as we were talking about anti-blackness with the images that we consume or the words that are used in uh cultures or just what we are taking in every day, it really uh, means that we have to be vigilant as we think about where anti-blackness shows up um, in our everyday lives and really understand that it, it's the way in which we were socialized. It, it's almost as if these messages and images and our thoughts uh, are like the air that we're breathing. And so as, as we look ahead and think about how we're going to interrupt and disrupt and dismantle the ways in which you know systemic racism and racism permeate within society, I want us to go back to thinking about the anti-blackness and where does it show up in our lives and really taking a pause and think about the unlearning that we have to do, the unlearning of 401 years of a single narrative. And so that's what I want to leave you with today to keep challenging the system, keep challenging the status quo. It's exhausting, but we got to keep doing it. We got to keep doing it. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me this week. We'll be back, as always, next week with a brand new episode. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button to the podcast. Leave me a review. Let me know what you're thinking. And hit me up on Instagram or Twitter at Relinda Speaks. And support the podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Patreon.com backslash Relinda. All right, y'all. Take care. Be well. And I'll see you next time. Bye.